You are listening to episode 71 of Fearless Rebel Radio. I am talking to the amazing Christy Harrison today, who also hosts a podcast called the Food Psych Podcast, which is an awesome podcast. And we are talking all about her uh, personal story as well as intuitive eating and how to make that work for you so that it is actually intuitive. Before we get started, I have some really exciting news in case you didn't hear me talk about this in a previous episode. My free Rock Your Body mini course to help you stop living behind the number on your scale is coming back in September and you are invited to uh, take the course with me again, the free one. And if you go to rockyourbodynow.com and sign up to get early notification of that, you will also be invited to an exclusive training with me where I'm going to be giving you at least a minimum of 10 ways to slay your body hate. And these are going to be ways that go a little bit deeper. Uh, They're not going to be like my typical recommendations like smash your scale or change your social media. Uh, I really want to get into some of the deeper stuff. And so that's what I'm going to cover in that exclusive training. So go to rockyourbodynow.com to get the free mini course and your invite to that workshop that I'll be running in September. Plus, you'll get some really killer bonuses from me when I open the door to my three-month coaching program that will only be given to those people who got on the early notification list. One last thing, you can find all the links mentioned in this episode at summerinanin.com forward slash FRR-71 because this is episode 71. All right, let's get started. Hello, everyone. I am really excited for today's guest. Today, I have Christy Harrison on the show. Christy is a New York City-based intuitive eating counselor and anti-diet registered dietitian, specializing in health at every size. She hosts Food Psych, a podcast dedicated to helping you make peace with food, and writes regularly for Refinery29 and other publications about food, nutrition, and health. You can go to her website to take a free quiz to check up your relationship with food, which I am going to have in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thanks so much for having me, Summer. It's great to be here. Yes. And um, we did a little bit of a uh, flip-flop. So we just recorded me being interviewed on your (laughs) podcast. So now I'm turning the table and I'm excited to hear about your story. So why don't we start with that? Why don't you talk about um, how you got to where you are today? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, like uh, so many of us, it was a really long and winding road for me. Um, Starting really, I mean, I had some body image issues with, um, you know, going into puberty and throughout childhood. I never really felt like I fit in really well and was sort of socially anxious um, for a lot of my childhood and adolescence. But I never did anything about it in terms of dieting or trying to change my body until I got to college. And I think the reasons for that are sort of both positive and negative because I think my parents and my friends sort of helped protect me from diet culture and, you know, told me my body was okay as it was and they loved me um, as I was. But I also felt like 
I mean, looking back on it, I think I had a lot of thin privilege because I was always relatively thin growing up. So, you know, nobody was telling me I needed to lose weight. Nobody was making fun of me. I did like dance and track and things like that, sort of, you know, competitive um, body focused sports in some ways. And nobody was ever like, oh, you really need to lose weight to be better at this. Mm. So I kind of got off easy in that regard. And I, I definitely think you know, that privilege prevented me from having issues earlier. But, you know, they caught up with me later because we do live in this very body negative culture. Um, And I think that's kind of a lot of what it was about when I first started dieting. Um, So when, when I was in college, I studied abroad in Paris for my junior year. And awesome. I, yeah, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> Talk about privilege. I, I was very lucky to be yes. able to do that. That's and right. I happened also to luck into this living situation with this awesome roommate who's like a French woman, a couple years older than me, whose father had started the magazine Savoir, mm-hmm. which is like this very famous food magazine here now too. And it's, it's so random that I ended up living with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she kind of introduced me to this whole world of food and cooking and, you know, the sort of gourmandisme of, um, of, of that world. So, um, oh, you know, I learned how to cook. And it's <laughs> so great. Yeah. <laughs> And she taught me how to how to cook intuitively, actually, like how to cook without recipes, um, which was so huge. And I still use to this day because it's it's really nice to kind of know, oh, I'll just add a little more of this. And here's how to, you know, saute that. And I'm going to brown this for a little while, you know, just kind of um, the basic structure of cooking. So that was really cool. But also, you know, being Paris, there were a lot of very rich ingredients and lots of butter. And, you know, I had grown up in... California in the 80s and 90s, where low fat was really the thing. And while nobody in my family was really actively dieting, like my mom was always saying she wanted to lose a little weight, but it was never um, sort of a concerted effort. It was always just like a little bit here, a little bit there, sort of trying to be as you know low fat as possible or whatever um, in her in her shopping. So I had grown up eating just low-fat milk, low-fat yogurt, you know, margarine instead of butter, all this stuff. So when I got to Paris and started eating all these amazing foods, I kind of went nuts. I was like very excited to have access to all this delicious stuff. And separately, I had um, I had been on birth control when I was in the U.S. And I went to my gynecologist before going abroad and I said, I need a year's worth of pills or how am I going to deal with the pill in France? Like, let's figure this out. She was like, oh, well, the pill you're on, I don't have enough supply to give you samples for the year, but I have like 12 months worth of samples of this other pill. Do you want to take that for free? And I was like, sure. Hell yeah. Like, I'll do it. So um, so I switched pills to this random pill that I had never tried before, and it made me gain weight very quickly. And I had never really had that experience before. I'd never experienced gaining weight at all, let alone sort of like rapidly within a month or two. And so suddenly my clothes were all getting tight. Like one day I split a pair of pants and I was like, my God, what's happening? You know, like had no, no frame of reference for this. And I remember asking my roommate, I was like, am I fat? Do I like, do I seem fat to you? And she was like, you're a little round, like kind of diplomatically, you know, like you're a little round. Um, and I was like, oh shit, 
okay, this is, I have to do something about this. Like I have to lose weight. You know, it was the, it was the moment when body shame first really surfaced and first really hit me in the face, you know, Mm. and looking back on it, it's like, I want to think that now I would accept my body if I gained that much weight, you know, whatever the case may be. But at the time, I just had no, um, no awareness of, you know, health at every size and body positivity and body diversity and the potential effects of birth control and all this stuff. So I just was like, what's happening? And I did not connect it to the pill, interestingly, even though at one point that year I got sick, like I got the flu and I just couldn't keep anything down. So I wasn't taking my pill for probably a week and I lost weight very quickly. And, you know, I thought maybe it was because I was throwing up so much or whatever, but I I look back on it now and I kind of like, oh yeah, also probably the pill, you know, was, was affecting it, but didn't see it. Um, and so when I got back to the U S I was like, all right, I'm gonna, you know, sort of go on this very concerted effort to lose weight. And I went off the pill and of course the weight loss happened pretty rapidly too, because I had just gained a lot of water weight from this birth control pill, but, um, and also had a lot of other side effects like acne and spotting and just, it was just not the right pill for me, but you know, I didn't, put it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went, went off it, but also, you know, was starting to severely restrict my food intake. Um, it was kind of the Atkins craze was happening at that time. So I was like dabbling in low carb stuff. And I also started really over exercising. And of course, you know, for a little while that, that worked quote unquote, because I lost some weight pretty quickly, but then I reached a point where I could not stop eating. And, you know, once I started eating, I couldn't stop. So I would restrict for large portions of the day or try to, you know, have my meals really planned out and eat very little and very specific types of food. And then, of course, every night I would end up binging on all, usually on all the stuff that was forbidden to me throughout the day Um, and, you know, kind of making up for all the restriction I had done and then berating myself and thinking that I had an emotional eating problem as we were just talking about on my podcast. Like I sort of labeled it as emotional eating and didn't see what I was doing that was leading to that sort of cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just want to stop you right th- there and I'll let you continue with, mm-hmm. like where that, where that went. But I just, I find it so interesting that you're, that it, was triggered in you so rapidly that, mm-hmm. you know, that it was just, you know, gain the weight, body shame, and then down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 What, um, like, what was your sense of self-worth like at that time? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I was not very secure with myself at all. And I had really very little sense of self. Okay. Um, because my whole life I had been basically like up until I was about nine or 10, we lived in Oakland, California. It's this very like liberal, diverse place. And I had a really lovely time there and things were, you know, a little difficult at home because my dad has some rage issues (laughs) that he has since uh, gotten under control and nothing was ever violent, but it was just, it was a little, um, you know, scary to me sometimes that, that I never knew when my dad was going to get really angry and yell. Um, but also I had a great peer group. I had really nice, you know, friends and neighbors and teachers and stuff. And then we moved to this affluent white suburb and I was 
like the black sheep. You know, I was, I was the weirdo. I was the outcast. I got made fun of a lot. And from that point on, I was really not sure of myself or where I fit in or what to do because all the things that I had sort of, you know, the, the things that I had instinctively done in Oakland and just been living my life, suddenly I was getting called out for and made fun of and, you know, shamed in this other, in this suburb. So I was like, okay, I better not trust my instincts. (laughs) So that was kind of what I was working with all throughout, you know, the rest of my childhood and adolescence. And of course, adolescence makes everyone kind of want to fit in and question, question their worth, question where they are in the social standing, you know, and um, it so happened that around adolescence, I got labeled hot, like for the first time ever. I was, had always had crushes on guys in, you know, elementary and junior high school and nobody liked me. Nobody wanted anything to do with me of, you know, the guys that I was interested in. Um, and suddenly I had interest requited and, and guys were noticing me and I was like uh, just thrown into this sort of pool of dating that I really wasn't ready for. Um, and so from the time I was about 13 on, I was always in a relationship, like probably didn't go more than a few months without being in a relationship because I just was so looking for that acceptance and, you know, really pretty codependent and looking to either take care of someone to sort of shore up my sense of self or just be in a relationship to have that validate my sense of self-worth, mm. um, have someone validate me for being enough or whatever. So Basically, and I was a huge perfectionist, I should also say. So the perfectionistic streak was very strong in me and is very strong in my whole family. Um, So I really had all the ingredients kind of there for an eating disorder. And I think it was just sheer luck that I didn't, and privilege, um, that I didn't have anything triggering it before. Mm -hmm. But by the time this, you know, incident in college rolled around, I I was in probably... Uh, maybe the worst place of self-esteem that I had been for a while because I had just broken up with my college boyfriend and I was starting to get involved with this guy who turned out was an alcoholic and bipolar and emotionally abusive. And I didn't know any of that really going in, but I it was, it was sort of this like dark path that everything kind of coincided at once. And so, yeah, so it was like, I need to change my body to be acceptable And then also I was in this relationship that was starting to tell me I wasn't acceptable and that, you know, everything I did was wrong or was going to set this person off. And I never knew when that was going to happen. So I think it really all sort of coincided to bring me to a really dark place. Yeah. It's kind of the perfect storm leading up to it. And then, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's Mm -hmm. just interesting about what I, I do find it fascinating that it was never really about your your body and then suddenly that was it you know that your body kind of became the guise for what was really happening underneath Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah and I had gotten those messages all along you know that Mm -hmm. women's bodies were um significant that I had to look a certain way to be lovable to be accepted all of that stuff I think it just so happened that you know nobody on the outside was telling me anything was wrong and by society's standards, I was thin. And then suddenly I wasn't. And people on the outside were telling me like, oh, yeah, you look a little chubby, you know? And then I was like, ah, like this is, okay, this has to change. Yes, yes, totally. So yeah, that was sort of the turning point that led me down 
the eating disorder path. Um, so it was, it was, it, to me, it sounded like it was very much like, you know, restrict binge, more of a dieting behavior. When did it turn into an eating disorder? Well, so I, I stopped having my period and that's when I think things started to really take a turn for the worse because I started looking around for, um, help for that because I knew that was a problem and that my hormones were definitely out of whack and I needed to be getting a period. But I did not want to look at the obvious cause, which was not eating enough over exercise. And, you know, I had lost a bit of weight. I hadn't lost like significant amounts enough to be alarming to most people and certainly not alarming to my doctors. Um, although some people in my family remarked on it and sort of were concerned because they knew me before. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't enough to look like the picture of an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. But, but I, um, I started looking for help for my period issue and not really accepting the, you know, my mom had suggested, like, maybe if you gained some weight and if you stopped restricting your food as much and stopped overexercising, maybe that would come back. And I did not accept that suggestion or that point of view, I was like, no, it has to be something else. Yes, of course. Right. Because you don't want to come to the reality is, is not something you want to have to address, look at. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So then, um, someone kind of pointed me towards gluten-free diets and cause someone, cause a, a family friend had celiac disease and had just been diagnosed. And I got to talking with her about, my symptoms and, you know, in addition to not having a period, I was having all kinds of other physical symptoms like fatigue and bloating and constipation and, you know, anxiety and depression and things like that. So it was, uh, you know, now I can see that all of those things are symptoms of food restriction, you know, bad behaviors with eating and exercise, basically, you know, out of disordered behaviors with eating and exercise, I should say. But at the time I was like, well, actually it sounds like gluten could be at the root of all of these problems. And it (laughs) was like, yay, you know, like I've discovered, I've, I've found the cause and the cause (laughs) wasn't eat more and exercise less, you know, it was like cut another food out. It's like justification for being even more restrictive. Exactly. On a silver yeah. platter. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. and and it was sort of co-signed by some doctors too without really, like I tried to get diagnosed. I went and got tested a million times and it was never um, positive. It always came back negative for celiac disease. But I had some doctors say, well, you know, but people, some people do feel better when they cut out gluten. So if you feel that's true for you, you should do it. And, you know, the celiac disease um, is just one, one manifestation of having an issue with gluten. And maybe you just have a hard time digesting it. You know, a couple of doctors said that to me and I was like, all right, sold. Like that's, that's what I'll do. Except that, you know, that was obviously really hard to do and still look socially normal. Um, Mm. because now I was, you know, I won't get into the details of everything I was doing, but because I don't want to trigger anyone, but I had like a lot of food rules that had mounted to where there was very little I could eat and sort of be acceptable on my food rules. Um, so I would end up, you know, trying to kind of skate by and, and look normal in public, um, by just, ordering, you know, whatever weird appetizer or side dish I could on the menu and then going home and binging at night. And um, so that's kind of the pattern I got into where I was binging every night. I was restricting every day and the binges got bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier. And then a couple of times I tried purging. And I think that was that was sort of the turning point, because I think 
you know, dieting and restricting and even like quote unquote emotional eating are sort of more socially acceptable disorder behaviors with food. But I think when it came to purging, I knew like, oh, that's an eating disorder behavior. Like that's no good. You know, that's, I I have a problem if I'm doing this. And so that was when I was like, I really need help. Like somebody please help me. And I told my therapist at the time and I told my mom, who's also a therapist, And they are both wonderful people and wonderful therapists, but they are not trained in eating disorders. They're, they were both women and who are steeped in our, you know, body negative culture. And, um, you know, my mom at least had her own issues with her body. And so even when I opened up about the purging, it was like, well, you know, my mom actually said to me in a very unintentionally ironic statement, she was like, one swallow does not make spring, honey. And I was like, but it happened twice. And she said, well, two swallows still don't make spring. Wow. (laughs) Like, you know, this old parable about like, it doesn't, it's not really a thing if it's happened a couple of times and you don't have to worry about it. Do you feel like that enabled you? I do. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I do very much because at the time I was, I was really, um, demoralized and I was looking for help. And I think if someone had had been sort of accepting and compassionate about that and had seen like, yeah, you know, even if you don't have full-blown bulimia just because you've purged a couple of times doesn't mean there's not a problem. And why are you deciding to purge in the first place? Like what's going on here that's, you know, leading you to do this behavior that you clearly know is hurting you. And God, you know, if that if that had happened, if either of them had said that, I think I probably could have saved myself years maybe of of disordered eating after that. Um, but, you know, I and I was definitely angry for a while at my mom and my therapists and my doctors for missing it because I felt like in retrospect, knowing what I know now about eating disorders and being trained in them as a medical professional now, like I'm I would have seen that and, you know, helped someone get a diagnosis if I were a provider for me at the time. But yeah, nobody, nobody knew, you know, nobody knew any better and nobody was trained in recognizing the symptoms. So yeah, so that really drove me further into it. That was kind of a um, license, I guess, to keep doing what I was doing, even though I, I didn't like purging, I didn't want to keep doing it. Like it was not my preferred behavior. Um, but you know, they sort of wrote it off like, well, it's not that big a deal. So I was like lightly in my repertoire for a little while longer, but actually what interestingly really saved me from going further into that and, you know, maybe developing full blown bulimia or anything like that was, um, I started dating this guy that I'd had a huge crush on for like eight months and I was working with him at this newspaper. We were both interns at a newspaper and, um, I started dating him and he was a huge foodie. He was really into food. He was writing about food for the newspaper. And so suddenly I had this very vested interest in seeming normal around food and seeming adventurous and like being up for anything. So I did like I pretended because I was, you know, that's that was my MO at the time was to just fit in wherever. And we talked earlier on my podcast about like being a chameleon and Mm -hmm. sort of shape-shifting to please whoever you are with. And that was so my style. That's exactly what I did, you know? Mm -hmm. And especially having dated so many guys and been in in relationships so consistently for a long time, I was sort of conditioned to do that to get guys to like me. Like that's, I I felt, I, you know, derived so much self-worth from being in a relationship that I knew I had to like 
be who they wanted me to be to avoid risking the relationship. So that's exactly what I did with this guy. And it sort of worked out to my advantage, even though obviously that behavior is not the key to a sustainable or happy relationship or good sense of self. It kind of saved me from spiraling further into the eating disorder because as I started spending more and more time with this guy, we got more and more serious. I was with him more often than I wasn't. And so even if I was doing disordered behaviors when I wasn't with him, I was like really invested in appearing up for anything when I was and um, sort of in the process actually started to love food and started to get more comfortable being adventurous with food even though I always had like negative judgments about my body on the back end I was genuinely excited to engage in the food adventures when I was with him and I started to write about food as well so then professionally I had sort of a mandate to be interested in food and to not be disordered with it. Um, but I also, you know, secretly was like freaking out every time I ate something where I didn't know the calories or every time I ate something that had previously been on my bad list or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was still flirting with gluten-free and, you know, that was like a multi-year sort of, uh, rabbit hole that I went down with trying to avoid gluten or figure out if I had a problem with gluten or whatever. So, it, so that kind of kept circling back as well even after I broke up with that boyfriend, even after I was, you know, more and more professionally invested in a food writing career, I was still circling around the gluten issue and still having a lot of negative thoughts about my body and doing sometimes compensatory things like over-exercising or restricting outside of work. Um, but the, the worst of it, I think, had, I had gotten past because of the circumstances I found myself in. And, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say then sort of the final step out of it was I finally found a, the right therapist, a therapist who could help me get to the underlying issues around my sense of self, my lack of self-compassion, my perfectionism, all the stuff that was sort of driving the disordered eating behaviors. And um, through that process, I finally opened up to her because, of course, you know, my efforts in the past to open up to medical providers and therapists about my eating problems had been shut down so thoroughly that I was just like, never again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to like bring this to anyone. I'm just going to get through it on my own. And finally I built enough trust with this therapist and I started to sort of see the cognitive dissonance in like having more self-compassion, being more, um, sort of, uh, embodied in other areas of my life and not being embodied and not having self-compassion around food and eating. It just, it was like, became so obvious that I had to talk with her about it. And so I did. And I think that was kind of the next step out of the disordered eating. Um, and then finally I went back to school to become a dietitian and I discovered the book intuitive eating somewhere in school, and I don't even know who introduced me to it, but I'm so grateful for them that they did because that was like the nail in the coffin of the eating disorder. What was your motivation to go back to school as a to be a registered dietitian? I think it was, you know, multifaceted. I think um, one of them was professional interests because I was writing about food and nutrition. That was kind of my beat, um, or health and nutrition in in the food world. Uh, so I you know, had a, a professional interest in kind of learning more and becoming more of an authority in that 
arena. Um, but of course, also my own disordered relationship with food and my body was a huge motivator. And I thought, oh, if I go back to school and learn everything there is to know about nutrition, then I'll just lose weight effortlessly, you know? Yes. Of course, that was still in the back, in the back, in the back of my back of my mind. My mind, like this would be an outcome, you know. Um, so it's kind of those two main things, and then also the magazine I was working for at the time was about to be shut down. We could sort of hear rumblings that something was going to happen. We didn't know for sure, but I was like, well, my future at this magazine is uncertain. And at the time, it was like 2008, 2009. The future of journalism in general felt very uncertain because, you know, magazines were shutting down left and right. Um, a lot of blogs and websites were coming on the scene that were paying people peanuts, like, you know, and that has just continued apace to where now I've been a journalist for 13 years and people are asking me to write for free, you know, and it's like, oh, yes. I, this is, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that in that respect that I went back to school and got a different skill that I could actually make a living, you know, because it's very hard now to make a living as a journalist. Um, so I kind of was, was up on all that stuff and had been talking to coworkers and like, you know, we all sort of had a plan B. Um, so that, that was kind of what motivated the timing, I guess. And so it all worked out pretty, pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. and, but because also, you know, being in school, well, it also, you know, triggered me a lot in, in some respects, like the, um, curriculum for being a registered dietitian involves a lot of very traditional weight science kind of stuff where it's like right. calories in, calories out. Here's how to put someone on, on a diet. Here's how to lose weight. Um, and we even had a class where we had to take our own height and weight, calculate our ideal body weight, and then see how far off we were from that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which was insanely triggering. But also, it was interesting because it, it taught me that that stuff is really arbitrary and, you know, that I, I couldn't listen to that because the initial weight that I calculated was supposed to be my ideal was my lowest weight for my eating disorder. And I was like, that can't be right because That's everything crazy. I had to do to, quote, achieve that weight was insane and everything I've learned in my other classes to this point would tell me that that stuff is really disordered and I was eating too little and so like how can this square you know um so I think it ultimately was a really helpful moment because it planted the seed that this you know s supposed weight science is actually very flawed yes and uh, I mean it must be it's in it must be interesting for you because you we're in that kind of environment. So you're familiar with the framework that's being taught to other um, health professionals and dietitians. And so there's probably a lot of dietitians out there that are using that model to calculate an ideal weight for people, mm -hmm. um, which continues to, you know, perpetuate these myths around weight and health and people's obsessions with their weight. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I'm so grateful that I ultimately found health at every size and that I was introduced to that. But I think that needs to be built into curricula for registered dietitians because, you know, it's crazy that we have to wait until kind of the end or when we're working professionally to get the message on that stuff. Right. You know? 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I had similar experiences with the health professionals that I worked with along the way on my journey as well in that, um, I was told that I had too much body fat to have hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, you know, I was, I was told to, uh, that, you know, yeah, my, my body fat was too high that, that, that my eating was definitely not an issue because my body fat was too high. And, Mm. you know, I classified in the, um, uh, you know, the, the upper end of like the normal weight range, even when I was like at my lowest. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just, it's crazy how that's, that's how we look and diagnose people. And, um, and then treatment is determined based on that factor instead of really understanding the behaviors behind it. Like mm-hmm. it's just, and it's sad because there's so many people out there who are, not being diagnosed and are probably being enabled much like you were when, when the professionals told you like, Oh, you don't have a problem. Like you, Mm -hmm. you're fine. You know, much like I was as well. It's, um, it's really sad that that's, that that's what's happening in our, in our culture. So I think it's wonderful that there are dietitians like yourself out there who are offering this alternative, um, perspective other than just people who are, um, perhaps, you know, like health coaches that then just discovered intuitive eating on their own, because Mm -hmm. there is, uh, I hate to say like, but there is a little bit more legitimacy when you are, when you can say like, I'm a registered dietitian and then I do this, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like people trust people with pieces of paper a little bit more than, than coaches, even though a lot of the times, like, you know, they can still be excellent, um, health professionals. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, you know, having the registered dietitian credential has allowed me to work with people like uh, coming out of treatment centers for eating disorders or things like that, where, you know, the the medical providers and the treatment center wouldn't refer to someone who is a health coach necessarily. They would refer to a dietitian. So it's, you know, that it's been helpful in that regard to kind of be able to work with um, other medical providers and have sort of cross referrals and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I will say that like, I mean, I'm happy with where my career ended up. I'm very happy. But, um, you know, now knowing what I know about health at every size and intuitive eating and seeing all the amazing health coaches out there who are doing similar work to what I do, you know, without the massive crushing debt that I have, or maybe a fraction of that, you know, from being in school for so long, because it took me I mean, I was, I was a rhetoric and French major as an undergraduate. So I didn't have any nutrition background going into graduate school. So I had to take a bunch of prerequisites. And that was, you know, and I did it, I did everything at NYU. So it was like very, very expensive, the whole thing. So I can only imagine. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, you know, many paths to get to, to get to this place, I think, but it's, I think that, you know, the medical community and the thinking on this stuff has to change a little bit because to be a provider in this field, you know, especially if I had been pro health at every size going in and already known then what I know now, I think I would have found the training to be a registered dietitian like so um, it, maybe not triggering because I don't think I could be triggered by that stuff at this point, but just so frustrating, you yes, know, and so, so outdated and enraging. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there really needs to be a change, I think, in terms of how these things are taught. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, what was it like when you discovered intuitive eating? What was that transition like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think at first I was uh, disbelieving. <laughs> like I was, you know, sort of uh, excited about the idea, but I was also very skeptical that it could apply to me because I was 
doing all this work on self-compassion and, you know, um, sort of mindfulness with my therapist and it was helping me feel better. It was helping my anxiety. It was helping my depression. You know, it was, it was objectively, I was feeling a lot better. So I knew it worked and I was grateful for it and I wanted more of that, you know, but I wasn't really a hundred percent ready to apply it to my relationship with food. Although I had an inkling that like, well, if it's helped me feel so much better to be, you know, accepting and self-compassionate and mindful in my other aspects of life, it probably will be the same with food. Um, so I kind of dipped a toe in, you know, I was very slow going with intuitive eating. I read a chapter through the book across the room, talked about it with my therapist. You know, she suggested a couple exercises that were sort of like on the path toward intuitive eating. And so I did those with great, um, skepticism and, but it kind of just built and built over time. So it probably took a good, like, six months to a year to fully be eating intuitively again. Um, but I kind of was making, you know, little strides on the road all the way. One of the things that my therapist had me do that was so helpful was like, cause I, I, you know, looking back, I can totally understand how she would see my restriction throughout the day and then supposed binging or emotional eating at night, which I wasn't even really binging at that point. I was just like eating an extra snack or something, you know, it was, it was very, um, minor, but I felt like the way I was relating to that extra snack or the fact that I shouldn't quote need that extra snack was really what my problem was. And in reality, the guilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the thinking I should be doing something else, you know, um, or feeling out of control when I was eating and eating more than I intended to. So my therapist had me write down what I was feeling and thinking immediately before going into that emotional eating episode or whatever. And she said, you know, rate your hunger on a scale of one to 10 and then write down what other thoughts and feelings you're having. And so I did that, you know, pretty consistently. And I started to see that like, oh, there's always some hunger there. I'm always a little bit hungry too. But I'm also having these thoughts and feelings and I'm thinking that I'm using the food to cope with this and that and, you know, that I shouldn't be eating and I'm having guilt about the food. But also there's this hunger, you know, and uh, so she sort of helped me clarify that, oh yeah, maybe you're also just hungry and you need to let go of some of that guilt about eating at this time because your body needs it, you know, your body wants to eat now. So I, I did start doing that. I started allowing myself to eat more when I was hungry. And then it wasn't really until um, I was doing the final step of my registered dietitian license, which was like doing rotations at various uh, hospitals and treatment centers and stuff, that I fully accepted that like what I was doing was normal eating because I think I... I thought that I had a weird relationship with food. I mean, I knew I had a re- weird relationship with food slash disordered relationship with food back in the day. And that, you know, all along the way, I was still relating to it in a somewhat disordered way and not quite where I wanted to be. But somewhere along the way, it did become very normal. And I, I didn't fully recognize or accept that until I did a rotation in an eating disorder treatment center. And, um, you know, learned what the dietitians there were teaching the participants. And like I did a, a one of my projects there was to compile all these materials that they were going to give out to people and select worksheets for them to use and, you know, different exercises to use in the groups and stuff. So I was reading all this literature on eating disorder recovery and I was like, oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing that. Oh, this is, oh, 
wow, okay, wait, I'm relating to food like very normally now. Like this is actually, I'm actually recovered and I didn't even realize it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, what you, you mentioned normal eating, like what, what's your definition of, of normal eating? How do you, how would you describe that to other people? Yeah. I mean, the word normal is so, so loaded, right? It's right. complicated. Um, but the definition of normal eating that actually was sort of hit me like a, a light bulb or, you know, ton of bricks or something when I was at the treatment center was um, Ellen Satter's definition of normal eating. She's a registered dietitian who specializes in um, children's eating habits and teaching children to be attuned to their bodies. And her whole thing is attuned eating, which is very similar to intuitive eating. And it's, it's about, you know, using your body's cues and your social cues to, um, you know, eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full and feel good and satisfied about your food choices. And um, so her definition of normal eating, I think, is the one that best encapsulates what I experience now and what other people experience when they are normal eaters, which is like, it's this whole, I mean, I, I would look it up because the paragraph, it's like a whole passage, a paragraph of all these different examples that I think are beautiful in summarizing what normal eating is. But it's like normal eating is going to the table hungry and stopping when you're full sometimes and sometimes eating more just because the food tastes so good. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, finishing and not having had enough, but trusting that you'll have an opportunity to eat again soon. And sometimes it's, you know, leaving some cookies on the plate because you know you can have more next time. Sometimes it's finishing them now just because they taste so good. You know, in short, normal eating is flexible, it's adaptable, um, and it responds to your your hunger, your fullness, the food avail- the availability of food and your emotions. And it's, it's just like, yeah, all of that, you know? Right. And I think, um, like, I don't know, for me, if I had read that back in the day, I would have thought, oh, that, 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 that can never apply to me. That, mm-hmm. you know, like, I'm, I'm not capable of that. I don't, I can't, I can't do right. that, you know? And I think, um, I think a lot of people don't believe that they can be that kind of person. Like I was mm-hmm. always like, I would ne- I can, I can never leave something on my plate or I could never, um, just have a bite of a cookie like are you crazy mm-hmm. like that's a freak of that's something that a freak of nature does <laughs> right. um and then one day you're the freak of nature and you're like wow okay yeah. no that is what is, <laughs> it is everybody's capable of it like it's true. everybody's capable yeah. yeah it's just like it's just that society and diet mm-hmm. culture has told us that we can't control our food and that it's it's created this extremely disempowering um, frame of mind around food in that, no, if if I have one bite of that, I can't stop. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's, that's, that's just your, that's just diet culture. Like those are just messages that diet culture has told you. And yes, if that is true right now, that may be true right now because Mm -hmm. of the diet mentality and because of the, uh, physical and or mental deprivation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And both are so powerful. You know, it's like, and actually, I mean, with, with cookies and things like that, you know, I used to always think, yeah, I can't stop once I start. So I better not have them around or whatever. And now I can keep them in the house for weeks and not like finish something in one sitting, you know, I can have a few cookies and it's no big deal. And the difference I think is the permission, you know, is the knowing that like, I'm going to be able to have access to this whenever I want. And also I'm not physically so hungry all the time. You know, I'm not walking around with like a pit in my stomach because I'm trying to restrict my food and adhere to some standard, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm 
well-nourished so that when I get hungry, it's not the crazy hunger that used to be the case, you know? What are your thoughts on food addiction? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Yes. Um, it's not a thing in terms of, you know, the, the science that supposedly uh, shows that food is addictive is actually really showing that food lights up reward centers in your brain and pleasure centers in your brain. And that's a good thing. Like that's, we were designed for that. You know, we were designed to have pleasurable activities or to have health promoting activities be pleasurable. Mm. So eating, sex, you know, sleep, like there are these things that activate pleasure centers in our brain and give us a sense of reward that are meant to be that way so that we can um, exist and, you know, continue as a species. Like if sex weren't pleasurable, we probably would have died out millennia ago, right? If eating weren't pleasurable and if we didn't get a reward from eating food and especially from eating, you know, calorie dense food, right? When in, in times of starvation, um, we wouldn't have existed as a species. So, you know, in that sense, the the research is just showing what we kind of knew anyway, which is that, yeah, f- eating is pleasurable, food is pleasurable, and especially, you know, sweet, delicious, um, kind of richer foods are pleasurable. But when you look at people who have been chronically restricting access to those foods and who are chronic dieters, you know, the addictive Addictive-like behaviors in relationship with those foods are are very pronounced. You know, people feel like they can't stop. People feel like they have to restrict access because once they start, they can't stop. You know, all these different things, right, of feeling addicted to food. But when you take away the overall restriction and diet culture and efforts at weight loss and you teach people intuitive eating or attuned eating and their physical needs for food are met – they actually relate to those same exact foods in a non-addictive way. So their pleasure centers in their brain are still lighting up, yes, but they're not, you know, unable to stop and out of control around those foods. They're actually eating when they're hungry and stopping when they're full, even with cookies and cakes and ice cream and all the other stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's such an interesting thing, you know. I will sometimes have a client come to me who um, defines themselves as a food addict. And I actually say to them, no, you're a diet addict. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, and when we address the dieting addiction, um, you'll find that you're, you're not a food addict. And I think that labeling people that or people who identify as that um, uh, makes it worse. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's like, oh, no, I'm the, I'm the victim to this. Like, I'm I, I there's you know, it's my addiction. And I think that that only perpetuates it, you know, that it's, it's different from drugs and alcohol, because we don't have a biological need for drugs and alcohol, you know, but we actually do have a biological need for food. So that's, you know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. your body's instincts, um, kicking in and doing the best that it can to give you the nourishment that it needs. But from the surface, it looks parallel to an addiction similar to like alcohol and drugs because it seems so out of control. Right, exactly. And I think that's why things like Food Addicts Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous have developed because they're sort of putting, excuse me, putting that same treatment paradigm on um, food, you know, the sort of addictive feelings around food as they put on alcohol, narcotics, et cetera. And it's just a fallacy that it applies to food in the same way. You know, it's not 
it's you don't treat the the addiction or the addictive like behaviors in the same way with food as you do with um, alcohol. So, you know, the, the overeaters anonymous or food addicts anonymous thing is like restrict your binge foods, right? Restrict access to anything that's going to make you out of control. And some, some programs go really far in saying like, don't have any, you know, flour, refined grains, you know, gluten, carbohydrates, whatever. And that is like the exact opposite of what needs to happen when you're recovering from the sort of out of control feelings around food. And yet in that paradigm, it's, it makes sense, you know, if you're sort of mapping this, the treatment for alcohol addiction onto food, it's like, oh yeah, restrict the access to the thing that's making you binge, you know? So I get where, why they made that mistake, but it's a mistake, you right. know? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I would love mm-hmm. to ask you because you, you know, you really are an intuitive eating expert. That like you have a program about it. Um, in your in your experience, what are the stages that people go through? Like, what what does that look like? I know, I know for you, mm-hmm. you you mentioned it took um, maybe six months to really realize. Oh, like I'm 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 doing this now. Um, and you know, you, you were an intuitive eater, eater as a kid and and a teenager. Mm -hmm. So perhaps that came quicker for you. Like, I'm curious if you could just kind of share what you've observed in working with clients. Like, is there kind of, are there kind of stages that people go through? How long does this take? What does that look Mm -hmm. like? Yeah, so I think it's really different based on each person's background, you know, because I think people who've had um, a long history of disordered eating or like, you know, from your experience, like since childhood, having some kind of like restrict binge, um, pattern all along, I think sometimes it can take longer to undo or to fully trust the process because, um, you know, a person doesn't have that frame of reference, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, I've seen people who did have that experience where all throughout childhood, they, they had a disordered relationship with food or they were criticized for their weight or whatever. And they're just so done and so ready by the time they see me that intuitive eating actually comes pretty easily, you know? So it, it really depends, I think on like where a person is in their readiness for change. And I think the, the big thing that sort of, um, I guess, telegraphs like where a person is in that process is how much is the disordered eating getting getting in the way of their life and how much is that is it taking away from their values and their pursuit of their goals Um, because you know once the disordered eating um, the negative consequences of the disordered eating really outweigh the benefits for the person they're going to be really motivated to change so I think you know anything I can do when I'm working with someone to sort of build awareness of the consequences of the negative consequences of the disordered eating and dieting is helpful for getting them ready to make the leap and then once they are ready I think what I usually see is like first sort of a huge wash of relief like oh this is this is amazing. Like I can actually do this and not have to restrict myself. And I have access to all these foods that I always thought were forbidden and I can eat when I'm hungry, you know, how amazing. But then there's sort of the fear that comes in pretty quickly after that, where it's like, but I'm not stopping when I'm full. Or what if I, you know, I'm, I'm still playing it safe right now with certain foods, but what if I venture into the fear foods and then, you know, have a bad experience. Oh, does that mean I'm never going to be able to eat these foods, never have them in the house, you know? And then I think for a lot of people, I see what I call the honeymoon phase, which is 
being yes. really obsessed with the foods that were off limits. Yes. Which actually has, you know, there's like a physical basis for that as well as a psychological basis. So I think working through both of those things is essential to getting, you know, moving through and getting past the honeymoon phase. But, you know, I always try to give a lot of compassion and acceptance for it too, because it's part of the process. And actually for a lot of people, their body drives them there because there's um, a neurotransmitter in the brain that really is heightened when you have restricted access to carbohydrates and to food in general. And so, you know, that neurotransmitter, neuropeptide Y, like mounts as you restrict yourself more and more. And it takes a while for it to come to come down, but it drives you towards like sweet, sugary, starchy foods in, you know, preferentially. Um, so it's doing that to protect you, to protect your brain because your brain runs exclusively on carbohydrates and you really need them. Um, so, it, you know, for a while you're going to have this physical response when you see cookies or bread or pasta or whatever, you're going to like actively move toward those things more so than other foods, but that's okay. You know, that's where you're at. Like that's part of the process. Mm -hmm. And if you can trust that and reassure yourself also that these foods will continue to be available, that you're not going to restrict them again and sort of get into this um, diet binge cycle with it where you can really say like, this doesn't have to be a binge because I, I don't have to diet again. There's never going to be a time when these foods are restricted. I can have them literally anytime I want. So now let's get down to the business of figuring out when I want them, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's about building up that trust. And it's like the pendulum often swings one way. And I think people get really scared and they, and they're like, how long is it going to take for it to swing back? And it's kind of like the less that you give thought to it and the mm -hmm. more that you organically let that happen, the easier I think it is in my experience. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Giving more acceptance to it kind of leads to better outcomes, I think, than freaking out and fighting it, which just leads you back into that diet restrict cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, oh, binge restrict good. cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I want to talk to you about a million other things. We'll have to have you back <laughs> on it some other Definitely. point. Um, I, yeah, I mean, like I wanted to loop back around to the relationships. I want to talk to you more about intuitive eating, but as we're wrapping up here, I definitely want you to tell people where they can find more, more of you. And, um, I know you've got a really great intuitive eating online course. So where can people find that stuff? Yeah. Thanks so much. First of all, for having me, it's so great talking with you. Yes, uh, definitely. We'll have to talk more soon. But. Yes. So yeah, so the online course is a 13-week course to help people learn um, the principles of intuitive eating and really troubleshoot the common pitfalls that that happen when people are trying to learn intuitive eating. So it's based on my own experience of learning intuitive eating and also my work with hundreds of clients doing the same process. Um, so people can find that at christyharrison.com slash course. Um, and then my podcast is called Food Psych, and people can find that at christyharrison.com slash food psych or by searching for Food Psych on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your podcast app of choice is. Um, and then I also have a free quiz that people can take to assess their relationship with food. So that is at christyharrison.com slash quiz, and you get an email with a bunch of personalized um, responses and recommendations for things to do to improve your relationship to food wherever you are. Um, yeah, cool. so that's that's 
all the places basically. And then I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and stuff too. So, um, you can find all that on my website. Great. And the last question I ask everybody is what is the most fearless thing that you have done? Mm. Fearless, most fearless thing I've done, I think was giving up the fight against food in my body. (laughs) That was really, um, it took a lot of courage to do that because, you know, as we've talked about, we have so much in our society that's pushing us to, uh, change ourselves constantly, you know, try to fit the mold of what what a woman is supposed to look like and be like. And I think it's taken sort of consistent courage to just um, push back against all the, the forces in my world that are still, even though I've surrounded myself with great people and great social media accounts and stuff, there's still all these forces out there that, you know, tell me I should be different. Um, so I think it's it's kind of an ongoing act of courage to just oppose that it is it really is it takes a lot of courage to yeah. to, to be who you are in the face of a society that tells you who you should be and I think that yeah. that's really important for people to recognize and see because I would never want this to seem like oh it's so easy like you know mm-hmm. you just smash your scale and eat what you want and it's easy it's not it's um, right it does take a lot of courage and uh and I think that you know I believe everybody has the courage to do it. I really, really do. So I think I think that's cool that you mentioned that as being one of your most fearless things because, uh, yeah, it does. It, it does. Yeah. You're facing yeah. a lot of fears when you do it. Exactly. Yeah, but it's, I mean, there's so much good on the other side too. It's yes. easy in terms of the day-to-day relationship with food. What's hard is the the social social messages you're getting all the time, you know? Yes. Like that's what takes what takes courage, I think. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been an honor. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. Show show notes. That's how I say that <laughs> word. And um, yeah, you're amazing. Keep doing what you're doing. Oh. And uh, it was such a pleasure. Oh, you too, Summer. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we did this. Rock on. If you like what you've heard, please head to iTunes to leave me a review. It will take two seconds and I would be super grateful. Click on reviews and ratings and then click to rate. Easy peasy. You can do it on your phone right now, just while you're driving even. Just kidding. And don't forget to head to summerimminent.com or thebodyimagecoach.com to grab your free rule breakers guide to rocking your bod plus the 10-day body confidence makeover plus your exclusive invite to my free online community all for free. Free, free, free. Cool. All right. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.